Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and welcome to 2019. This is our first meeting of the new year, and we're quite excited. We'll be heading into more of the Old Testament. We've already wrapped up the books of the Torah, and we'll be moving tonight into a look at Joshua and Judges. Uh, Amazing stories, very action-packed stories, lots of characters that I'm sure you grew up reading about, namely that of Joshua, Samson, and many others. Uh, Dr. David Flatt will be teaching tonight. He'll do a wonderful job with that, I'm sure. And again, we'll be following uh, a path laid by the Bible Project and the, uh, the people there that do wonderful work and have a wonderful curriculum to draw from. So I'm looking forward to spending some time together with a lot of our students and our friends and with David as he teaches us on Joshua and Judges. So let's maybe take half a step back. So we've been running through the story of the Bible. The idea here is that we'll spend, I guess it'll be 13 weeks. We started in Genesis and we'll end in Revelation. And so we get the whole story of the Bible. I think it's such a beautiful story to see how God had a plan all the way through history. So he's orchestrating nations and armies and wars and little-known people and a prostitute from a village and this farmer and how he just weaves human history together that culminates in Jesus and the cross and ultimately will culminate at the end of history in Revelation. So we're four chapters in to a 13-chapter series we're going through. We're going to break it up. So we'll do like five chapters and take a break, do something else, then come back. But by the end of the year, we'll get all the way through the whole story of the Bible. And so this is chapter four in that 13-part series. So we've talked about... You just kind of think back uh, where we've gone. So we started in the garden, and um, God creates this good world that's corrupted by sin. So that's an important kind of theological branch point in the story is Genesis 3. So the world is not good anymore because we have sin in us, and we've made what God created good, we've made it bad. And so the rest of the story is really a rescue mission. How's God going to set things right? And so God picks this random guy named Abram, who is not a God-fearer, not a, certainly not a Christian, there's no, not, even social, not even such a thing, but picks this man Abram out and chooses to bless him. He says, I'm going to give you three things. This is Genesis 12, I think one of the most important chapters for the rest of the Bible because it kind of sets up what happens for the next 2,000 years. So God promises Abraham three things. He says, I'm going to give you a great land, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So this time Abram... Um, didn't really have any land. He was a nomad. Certainly didn't have a, a nation after him. He didn't even have any children. And the idea of blessing the whole world seems crazy, right? He's just this kind of um, nomad farmer, ranch rancher with a bunch of sheep and you know some servants. But how's he going to bless the whole world? And so that's really the story of the rest of the Bible. How does God fulfill this promise to Abraham? Abraham has a son named Ishmael, but Ishmael was not born through Sarah, which is the line that God chose to bless. So. He, uh, Abram has another son named Isaac. Then Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's this like scoundrel, steals the birthright from Esau. Um, so Jacob is the line that uh, God's blessing comes through. Then Jacob has 12 sons. The second youngest is this guy named Joseph, who the whole story, but he's oppressed by his brothers and ends up in Egypt. Through God's providence, Joseph's family joins them in Egypt because of the famine. And then that's how Genesis ends. 400 years later, there's a Pharaoh came to power that doesn't know Joseph, so he, he enslaves all of Joseph's family. They become slaves in Egypt. Then Moses leads the Exodus out of Egypt, and they're wandering in the desert. So they wander in the desert for 40 years. Eventually, they come to the edge of the Promised Land. Moses dies and names Joshua 
the new leader of the Israelite people. So that's where we are right now. That's the beginning of time to where we are in the story here, the start of chapter 4. So Joshua, I think, has two themes that are really powerful themes that I think really apply in every age, regardless of kind of the cultural context you find yourself in. So they were really applicable to us. The first is be strong and courageous. That's your blank. Be courageous. So we won't have time to kind of walk through every battle, but a, a huge theme in the story, not every person, but a lot of God's people were strong and courageous in the face of all kinds of reasons to be timid and to be fearful and to not go through with what God was calling them to do. So a huge message of Joshua is be, be strong and courageous in the Lord. Be bold. We, we have the Lord's power behind us. Who are we to fear? So that's a big theme. And the other one is choose who you will serve. So this is kind of how Joshua ends the book. Um, so all through the story of Israel, a big emphasis is don't turn to idols. You think, well, that's weird. We wouldn't turn to idols. That's not a temptation for us. We have all kinds of other temptations because the culture we are surrounded by. But the culture the Israelite people were surrounded by was everyone's worshiping these different idols. So you just see the power of culture on the psyche and the moral choices of people. Because over and over and over again, the Israelites keep worshiping all these idols that they're surrounded by. And so Joshua ends the book with this kind of impassioned speech. Are you going to worship these idols that your forefathers worshipped out in the desert and that the um, Canaanites worshipped all around us, or are you going to serve the Lord? And the, the famous phrase that's on a, a plaque in a, a, you know, a bunch of houses, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's kind of a, a major theme of Joshua is um, who are you going to serve? you got to make that choice. So I wanted to kind of quickly run through the uh, four sections as the Bible Project guys divided up. I, there's obviously different ways to divide it up, different things to emphasize, but um, I think their method was, was as good as any. So there's four main movements in Joshua. The first is Joshua leading Israel into the Promised Land. So remember, Moses comes right up to the edge of the Promised Land. We watched um, the animated Ten Commandments movie with our kids right at, at Easter, so Passover time, um, and Allie started crying when Moses didn't get to go in the promised land. It was like this devastating thing for her. And I'd never like heard the story that way. But it's a pretty rough deal, right? I mean, this dude, like, he went through a lot to get to the promised land. And then he just, like, he dies. And he like, gets to go up on a mountain. He's like, God's like, there it is. All right. <laughs> Thanks. You know, so uh, that's kind of, that's how um, Moses' story ends. And then Joshua is named the new leader. So Joshua's appointed. And then... Um, you know, Joshua says, we're going to follow the Torah and kind of gives this speech that says, like, Moses was leading us in the right way, and he's going to kind of continue with Moses' vision. Um, I want to pull out one story. Just can't, can't talk about all the details, but I think there's a really cool gospel point. And this is this idea of when this angel of the Lord encounters Joshua right before this major battle. And so some people, you might want to write this word down, a theophany. A theophany is this idea of does Jesus appear in Old Testament stories? And um, so you're obviously going to have some debate about that. But there's some Christian scholars who believe that this angel of the Lord is actually Jesus. Um, it has to do with like the Hebrew language. and I, So whether that's true or not, I think the point is pretty cool. And it's the angel of the Lord encounters Joshua, and it demonstrates this profound theological, social, and political truth that the important question that we should ask is not whose side, that's your blank, is God on. Right? So you th think about all the... Um, just theological and social and political and cultural wars we get in over all kinds of stuff. Some stuff that's important, that's worth kind of having a fight about. Some stuff that's silly. But I think a question we're often asking is, 
on my side or the other person's side? And um, this story with Joshua and the angel of the Lord shows that that is the wrong question to ask. The question we should be asking is, are we on God's side, right? Not is God on our side, it's are we on God's side. So God is the arbiter of truth, and so we want to align our mission, our views, what we stand for with what God stands for, not hope that he would pick us over our enemy, right? So this just shows again how the Bible thinks about things backwards from we do. We view ourselves as the standard, and so... Sometimes we'll even get into this later, but we kind of judge God. Like, is he lining up with how we think he ought to live? But the the Bible does just the opposite. The Bible is not concerned <laughs> with our standard. The standard of the Bible is God. And really the question of the Bible is, how is that kind of holy God going to forgive and love sinful people? Right? So it's kind of the backwards from the way we view things. And this encounter with the angel of the Lord is exactly that. This you know, um, Gideon's worried about, are you going to be on our side? I'm not Gideon. Joshua's worried, are you going to be on our side? And um, the, the angel of the Lord's like, the question is, are you on God's side? So it reminds me of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it's right during the middle of the Civil War. You know, things are heated, and um, you could tell the whole story about what a rough thing one of um, one of Lincoln's generals come to him and says, do you think God's on our side? And Lincoln says, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. I think that's a, a neat way to view um, the the sides that you take in life. Is are you taking God's side as opposed to just picking a side and hoping that God bless you and, uh, and deliver you victory? Okay, so that's kind of the first section, chapters one through five. Chapters six through twelve are these battles with the Canaanites. There's these Canaanite people, obviously. If, God's given them the promised land, but there's like a bunch of people living in the promised land. And so that's, there's all these spy stories and stuff before we're trying to figure out what's going on. Basically, spies come back over and over and say, the land's awesome. The people there are going to be hard to like run out. And um, so that's really what happens these next six chapters. So Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, everyone's heard that story. It's a fun story to like tell your kids and sing the song and act out. We haven't done that yet, but that'd be fun, like march around the house and we're knocking the walls down. Um, but in some way, the school idea behind the Battle of Jericho, I think this is the point. The point is that Israel is a passive participant and they follow God's strange plan. Yeah, um, there's a, what, what is called this idea of chronological arrogance. We think we're smart in 2018 and everyone would see it that lived uh, back in Joshua. Era, which is not true for a lot of reasons. Big side note, but there's like a study of brain size and stuff. People think that like cavemen had like higher IQ than we have. But you know, the internet to like look stuff up, like their brain larger. And they, you think about the past, they do. They didn't know more than we do. Like yeah, they don't. They they had to know how to farm, how to take care of a house, how to cook. You know, there was no like Uber Eats. You know, <laughs> so much more than we do. So. Oh, these are humans lived in a technological era. I say, to recognize this plan is ridiculous. Right? There were no armies around walls, blowing trumpets, and winning military victories. Right? So it isn't uh, these strange people from the past. They thought that you could like blow trumpets and win wars. No. The point is. God's ways are greater than our ways. When we trust in His power, we can obtain victories that we couldn't obtain on our own, right? And so if, if we were going to sit around and get a battle plan to defeat Jericho, this would not come up, right? If we had like a little brainstorming session, no one would like write that on the, on the whiteboard, right? But, but that's the whole point. 
the point is the people of God's power is greatest when they trust in God's plan, even when they don't understand it. And so that's why that's the story of the Battle of Jericho. It's also the story of the Battle of Ai, or I, or however I've heard this city pronounced different ways. But this guy named Alkin steals this treasure from this conquered city, which makes sense, right? All military in the history of the world, you conquer a town or a city, you get to keep the loot. That's kind of part of the military worldview. And so it makes sense. But that wasn't God's plan. We don't, we're not going to go in and take all their stuff. And so only after Israel repented and, um, and punishment was delivered was Israel blessed with victory in that battle. So your blank there is God is the, the deliverer. His people trust in His power. Okay, so I said a lot of words, talking kind of fast, but I want to slow down for a second and talk about what I think is a really important idea. This is our first gospel truth for tonight. So the covenant blessings of God... So just there's kind of four main covenants, or I guess five covenants in the Bible. You've got the um, Noahic covenant, so this is God's covenant to never destroy all humanity again. Then you've got the Abrahamic covenant, we talked about that in Genesis 12. Then you've got God's covenant with Moses, that's what Mount Sinai is all about. Um, then you have um, God's covenant through David, so he promises that a descendant, of, a descendant of David will rule over and bless the world. And then finally you, you have the covenant with Jesus, the new covenant, as I would call it. And so there's a concept of these covenants. And the concept is the covenant blessings of God have always been based on our obedience to his good and gracious authority. So they took Jericho when they trusted in God's authority, even though it didn't make sense. They struggled with taking AI because they thought they had a better way to do it, right? And so I, I want to be careful here because we're not saying that God's going to give us health and wealth and bless us here in this world when we are obedient to His commands and His authority. That would be a false gospel that's not true. So God blessing Israel here with military victory is not him blessing them in this world. It's him being fulfilled. It's him being faithful and fulfilling his covenant promises. So his covenant promises to us that through Jesus Christ we will be his people and we will receive the blessings of the forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ with the Holy Spirit. That is dependent on our obedience to God's authority in our life. So there's a kind of a Christian idea out there that God doesn't care how you live. Right, So we've been forgiven. We have grace. It doesn't matter if we live moral lives or not. That's been a Christian idea since the New Testament times. Like Paul was confronting this idea in the New Testament. And it's, it's even out there today. Like, let's just kind of live however we want because we've got grace. And I just want to say, like, that has never been the story of the people of God. It's never been like, God loves us, God's forgiven us, so let's like eat, drink, and be merry, and go live lives of debauchery, right? God has always called His people to obedience, to His authority, even when we don't understand it. So God calls us to things in this world that are different than the rest of the world. His fulfillment of His covenant to us is dependent on our obedience to Him. Okay, so you have this subsect of the, Can the Canaanites, the Gibeonites. I think this is interesting. They turn to God and, and become part of the people of God. But the Canaanites resist and are destroyed, right? So God was offering a way to be His people. If you be faithful, trust in His commandments, follow the Torah. Which leads us to, I think, an interesting question, especially among millennials, is this idea of, is God a moral monster? So you've got these weird passages in Joshua, and it's like, and we wiped them all out and slaughtered all the women and children. And it's like they're celebrating this like victory. 
and it, it does feel kind of weird. Um, and so there's a, a couple of different ways to think through this. I, I want to, I'm going to teach this as, as if the Bible project, the way they explain it, is the way that we ought to view it. But you should know there's other ways to think about it, and uh, maybe we can talk about some of those later. But I, I think their answer is probably the closest to right, which is when you're interpreting any kind of literature, especially biblical literature, you have to understand the context that it's written in. You have to understand what words would have meant to the author and to the original recipients of, of the text. And only then do we try to apply that text to our lives in the current conditions, right? So uh, an inappropriate way to study the Bible is to, to take the text, go off on your own, read it by yourself, not try to pursue any outside context or within um, the, a loving, faithful church family and try to see, like, find your personal meaning in the Bible. Like, that's not how to study the Bible. And so we shouldn't do that here either. So here's just kind of the, the major points here. So our position with God is not as judge, but as judged. So I guess this is kind of even a step back for where I was heading a couple of sentences ago. But this is the idea, I just want to remind us as we come to questions like this, it's tempting to put on our... Um, 2018 cultural glasses of moral superiority and and act like we stand in a position to judge God. So I guess all I'm saying is if you if I could never get to a place where I could kind of make um, moral satisfaction with these texts, it never made sense to me. I still wouldn't say God, you're morally evil and and I'm you know castigating you and judging you. That's just not my place. God is a creator. My job is to try to live up to his standards for my life. So he's judging me. I'm not judging him. And so I think kind of as we approach the text, we ought to be like that, which is also really countercultural and hard to do, right? Even saying those words feels kind of weird because that's that's not how we think about anything else in the world. But I think that's the biblical view. The second idea I want to say is this is important. I've got a couple of friends who have kind of fallen into the um maybe the secular trap and kind of floated away from faith. And a lot of times it's not because there's not answers to their questions, but there's an assumption when you ask a good, difficult faith question that they assume there must not be an answer because it's a good question. So my, my charge here is do not assume that there aren't good answers to hard questions. Right. So just asking a hard question about faith or about the Bible or about whatever you know, science in the Bible, or um, the authenticity of the text, or like here we've got kind of a moral problem. There's like this evil, seems like genocide, mass murder that God's people performing, and maybe God even commanded it. So these are good questions, and God is the God of all truth, and so He's open to answering your questions. But just because you can formulate a question that, that you don't know the answer to, that seems to be difficult, I think we need to be careful in assuming that there isn't an answer, right? So smart people have been doing this follow the Torah thing, follow the Bible thing for literally thousands of years. So people have thought about these questions. There's not a question that, that I'm going to think of that's like unique, like, oh, I wonder why Aquinas didn't think about this. Like, no, that's not true. Like, people have thought about these questions. And so we, we should at least avail ourselves to the wisdom of the church and see how people before us answered these questions before we come on the scene in 2018 thinking that we've got some original question that there's no answer to. Um, and so I think you just got to be careful and humble when we kind of run into stuff. There's good questions. I'm not uh, demeaning anyone for asking good questions. But let's see if there's an answer before we assume there's not. Okay. So... This question humbly asked is appropriate and deserves an answer. 
So I just want to make two points, and it's, it's two of the points they made. The first is the evil of the Canaanites and the threat to the holiness of Israel. So the Canaanite people were a, a, an evil civilization. I want to say unique. I guess they're not really unique, but on par with any other in human history. So they were literally um, sacrificing babies to this false idol of Baal as part of their normal cultural practice. And then they were involved in sexual behavior that really demeaned the image of God in, in women and in men and demeaned God's calling um, on his creatures to practice and celebrate his beauty and sex. And so you kind of combine these ideas of child sacrifice and gross sexual immorality and a deeply violent culture. And I just think beginning this discussion has to start with who are the Canaanites. Um, the second idea is God's call on his people to be holy, to be set apart. So remember, God's going to bless the whole world through Abraham's people. So if Abraham's people fully assimilate and become Canaanites, then God's plan is not possible. And so this concept is important in the Old Testament because there's all kinds of weird stuff that God calls the Israelite people to do that he doesn't call us to do as New Testament Christians. Because God's purpose for the um, people of Israel was different than his purpose for us. He has to keep the people of Israel set apart culturally and civil and from a civilization perspective because the savior of the world is coming through their line. So he needs to do the Israelites need to do things to keep themselves separate from the rest of the world. And so they cannot assimilate into the Canaanites. That has to be that's a huge kind of historical problem that must be avoided. You cannot the Israelites cannot assimilate into the Canaanites. So um it does go to extremes to say you got to wipe them out, you got to get them out of the land. You don't, and then like later, don't do business with them, don't intermarry with them. You know, don't be involved in certainly their child sacrifice that they're doing or going to their um, worshiping their sexual gods and goddesses. Um, but all that being said, I think importance in, in understanding the literature, the language of war and ancient battle accounts use descriptions of destruction in non-literal ways to describe victory. So I think that sentence kind of captures the idea. We use similar language with sports today. So um, Tennessee, my favorite team, they got destroyed like a bunch of times this year. Like really destroyed. <laughs> and you might, I might even say um, literally destroyed, but I don't actually mean literally destroyed, right? Like everyone knows what I mean. I mean, like, it was a, a bad loss that, like, did not go in any way, shape, or form with what we had planned, and total victory was achieved by the other side. And so I think something similar is going on here with the language in the Old Testament. Whoever wrote Joshua is communicating um, that the Canaanites were wiped out, achieved a total loss from any kind of military goal uh, in these battles. And so I think that's, a, that's about what's going on. And as I pointed out in the Bible Project, the text surrounding uh, these battle passages suggests that this literary device is being used here. So the Canaanites, they're commanded to like wipe them out totally but then he also commands them to, like, don't intermarry. So if, if you have totally wiped them out, why would you be commanding to not intermarry? Well, the assumption is don't totally, you know, they're not going to be totally wiped out. You can't marry someone who's dead. At least you couldn't then. I don't know, 2018, there's weird stuff going on, but <laughs> you get the idea. Okay. So Joshua divides up the promised land. This is chapters 13 and 22. And so because this is so boring, I, don't, I mean, have you guys read this as 
I mean, it's unbelievable. I like their description. They say it's like a map without pictures. I mean, it's just like of a land like you don't know. So it's not like a map of like Germantown where you're like explaining roads and stuff. I mean, it's like it's so hard to read. Um, so it's not that interesting to us. There's not a lot of like lessons in the text. But the big picture lesson I think is an important one. Because remember, these people have not forgotten our great, 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 great grandfather 500 years ago. Um, Abraham, he was promised three things, and one of them was a great land. And this is that promise being fulfilled, right? So we're a great nation now. We, there's you know about two million of us, and this is us getting our great land. This is chapters thirteen through twenty-two is the fulfillment of the second of the three promises. Right? A huge deal. It's going to be another like twelve hundred years before the third promise is fulfilled. So this would be a huge deal to Israelite people, and they these verses would have hit them differently than they hit us. They would have been. This is us getting the land that God promised Abraham. So this section was important to Israel as it details the fulfillment of God's covenant, that's the blank there, promises to Abraham. Okay, let's wrap up Joshua with this final section, chapter 23 and 24. Chapters 23 and 24. I kind of alluded to this before, but I'm just going to read Joshua's words. But just let's think about the historical context that we've talked about and what, where Joshua would be speaking these words into. Now, fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord." That's basically how the book ends. There's a few ch- verses kind of summing it up, but that's kind of Joshua's final words before his death. Choose who you're going to serve. Joshua's family, we're going to serve in the Lord. So that brings us to the end of the book of Joshua. So here is Judges. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the command. Okay, so that was a video about uh, Judges. Let's just talk about it real quick. So background, Judges is the story of Israel's failure to live up to the Torah commands of God despite Moses and Joshua's end-of-life pleading. So both Moses and Joshua give these awesome speeches right before they die. Be faithful. Choose who you will serve. Remember what God's done for us. And then the Israelites totally ignore everything they said. And the book of Judges is just basically a disaster. It keeps getting worse and worse. Judges tells the story, often in violent and disturbing ways, of how God's people were led by regional military and political leaders called Judges prior to having a king. So this is the formation of Israel. They don't have a king yet. They're being led regionally by these judges. Remember, there's 12 tribes. Joshua divided up the land into 12 sections. So that's what's going on here. Okay, quickly on the framework, Israel's failure to drive out the Canaanites. So remember, God calls Israel to drive out the Canaanites, don't assimilate with them, and Israel basically ignores a lot of that. And God called God called Israel to drive out the Canaanites to avoid the corrupting effect of assimilation in the Canaanite culture. Instead, Israel assimilated with evil. Assimilation is your word there. Israel's assimilation into and tolerance of evil led to a cycle of oppression, repentance, deliverance, and peace that spirals downward throughout the book. So this cycle happens over and over again. So you've got 
um, Israel's embrace of Canaanite evil, which leads to repentance. Then a, a judge comes to deliver them, and then there's peace and things are better. And then it happens again. But each time it happens, it's worse than, than the time before. So you kind of have this downward spiral all the way through Judges. And this last story is just unbelievable. The evilness that the people of God have embraced at the end of Judges. And so each time we accept evil, it's much harder to return to God's standards. I think that's one of the points in the story of Judges. This, this cyclical cycle, it doesn't just stay in the same place. Each time, the immorality is worse, and the deliverance is less, and the repentance is less sincere, and yet at the end, they reach rock bottom. So here's the gospel truth. God's people from the beginning have been called to be two things. One is a light to the world. That's not just a Christian calling. That was a call of Israel and God's people. That's a lot of what the prophet Isaiah is about. We are God's people. We are supposed to be a light to the nations. That was always true. The people of God are to be a light to to the nations. But the people of God are also supposed to be set apart, to be holy. So that's also a huge theme in the Bible of don't be like the people that you're living next to. So you have these themes that that really are in tension, I think, with each other. One is be a light to and influence the world. Be outward focused. Be interested in what's going on five countries away and right next door. But there's also this theme of don't get out there and assimilate and become like the people that you're surrounded by because they're evil. And so I think the challenge, we like to think everything's new in our era, but part of being a wise person is recognizing this is not new. And so the challenge is exactly that today, right? Is we want to be a light to the uh, people that we're practicing next to or sit next to in school or work next to in the hospital, but we also don't want to become like the sinful world that we're surrounded by. So I wondered if maybe we could stop for a couple of minutes. Does anybody want to share how they felt that tension or maybe how a strategy for resolving that tension? How do we be a light to the world but also be set apart from the world that we're surrounded by? I'll just share that I think with each new phase of life, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think at certain stages I've sort of improved who I was, and at certain stages I've gone the opposite direction. And it is sort of like it's hard to correct it. Like I think this sort of spiral kind of takes over mm-hmm. a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's tough. It's Once you've sort of established yourself as a certain type of person, that's kind of like that's how you're viewed, you know. Um, so like in the orthodontic community, for example, like if, if a lot of people know who you are because you speak or whatever, watching you, you know, and mm-hmm. so you make yourself out to be a Christian, and yet there's a night where it's, everyone's out partying, having a good time, or whatever, it's immediately you're kind of viewed in that way, you know, so it's, you know, you're, you're given this opportunity, certainly as a Christian, to, it is good to be a part of community, and be known, and to know, and have good relationships, and foster that as much as you can, but you have to be set apart, it's difficult. Kind of reminded of uh, Billy Graham had like a rule that he wouldn't you know, be around women by himself and he wouldn't drink and you know the presence of other like he's like very like strict rules which have been made fun of recently by, by people um, so as to make him out as like he's backward or something but he has those rules because he knows what could happen if he did you know so mm-hmm. um, boundaries yeah boundaries and obviously who more than someone that's a preacher on TV that preaches in front of tens of thousands of people needs to protect 
their holiness or their yeah. self-partness. Mm, that's good. I'd say it becomes like girding up your loins, putting armor and truth on and all that when you go out on a shift. Mm-hmm. Pick up your cross. Yeah, that's good. think it's easier it's becoming easier and easier because oh, that's you're truly following you know um, the commandments and you're living a Christ like lifestyle you're going to look a lot different um, than the rest of the world and so um, if you set yourself apart uh, just by the standards you live people are going to notice that difference um, I think more and more uh, as we become more secular and so in a way that's being the light yeah. it's, it's at least a first step because if you don't look any different um, and you try and pretend to fit in um, you don't really have any authority to um, preach something different. Yeah. Preach a, a better way. That's good. That's good. Really good. Um, so maybe that's just something to kind of think about and pray over and ponder is how, how are we balancing this tension, being a light to the world, but also being set apart. Okay. Um, so let's kind of try to land this plane here, the end of Judges. So um, let's just kind of the outline that uh, they use the Bible Project through chapters 3 through 16 so you got these pretty good judges you got uh, Othniel, Ehud and Deborah Deborah's the only female judge so that's kind of a, a neat thing that she's got going for her. so these are pretty good judges they're not perfect people they're messed up just like the rest of us but you wouldn't see unbelievable um, rampant immorality in them but things kind of change with Gideon so Gideon defeats the men um, Midianites with only 300 men this is like the they're like drinking water out of the river, remember? And it's like who leans over or who drinks it with their hands. Another like weird uh, battle plan that God has. But Gideon follows it and uh, God delivers, gives him a great victory. Gideon though has a temper. And then he makes an idol, which is like this weird thing. Like I mean, you guys literally are like seeing the power of the one true God. And you keep like getting stoned together and making idols. Like why do you think that's a God? You know, there's a lot to this, but I think something to be said is that you embrace and are influenced by the culture that you're surrounded by, which is one of the reasons that forming not kind of closeted, um, backward Christian culture, but a really profound and creative and forward-looking and truth-embracing Christian culture, it's one of the reasons that's so important. Because if you can create a culture, then you influence people in really profound and deep ways. You can even make people who see the God of the Bible exert his power, create things out of stone and wood and start worshiping it. That's just human nature is to kind of follow cultural trends. So we want to be influencers, influencers of culture for the glory of God. Okay, then you have the next bad king, so Jephthah. I think the video called him like a, a mafia man in the mountains. It was kind of like a, was a, a funny name, I thought. Um, but this guy's an effective warrior and leader. So basically, like, the, Israel's kind of getting overrun by these... Um, enemies and so they go the leaders of Israel go and get Jephthah and say hey can you come down here and 
whip these guys for us. And Jephthah does, comes down and, and defeats them all. But then, like, then Jephthah is, like, introduced to God. He starts worshiping God like he's Baal and, like, sacrificing his daughter to him. Like, um, and so I, the point here is that you have to, like, from the Lion King, Mufasa says to Simba, you got to remember who you are. And so Jephthah had forgotten who he was, and more importantly, the, the, all of Israel had forgotten who they were. I think Jephthah never really even understood, probably because Israel had forgotten their stories and, and wasn't teaching them to the next generation, which is why that's such an important commandment that God has always given his people. So think about um, back when we say Deuteronomy, it's like famous verse, Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to, the, to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you die. So your blank there is forget. When the people of God forget the ways of God, evil reigns. Then you have the worst of the judges, Samson, who's maybe the most famous, which is kind of sad, because this dude was, he was like an awful, awful person. So he was... He was sleeping around with all kinds of different women, treating women like they were, um, you know, just like something to be owned, as opposed to uh, you know creatures created in the image of God. He was violent and somewhat, and oftentimes unnecessarily violent. He was arrogant and he was murderous. He was like trying to kill people for the sake of killing people. Um, God even used. Samson to to deliver his people, but uh, the point here is that the corrosive effect of the people of Israel forgetting who they were is extending even to their leaders, which leads us to the worst part of the book, the very end, and the, the, really the theme of the whole book. Here, this is repeated, I think, six times in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges is a tale of tragedy that shows with disturbing honesty what the human condition is and where our unconstrained nature leads. So again, I just want to warn us against chronological arrogance. We look back and say, oh, we would never do that. Those Israelites, they're so, so dumb or so evil or whatever. You and I are more than capable of these exact kind of choices. Uh, and that's why remembering who God is and what He's done for us is so important. So the, the call to remember, I think, is really kind of in the background of all of Judges. The people of Israel forgot who God was and who they were, and it led uh, to violence and murder and, and anarchy. And so the, that's how the book of Judges ends. And, and there's, in those days, there was no king. So there's no king in Israel, and things are going really, really bad at the end of chapter 4 uh, in the story. So we'll pick up there next week. Hopefully things get a little better. Thanks. All right, thank you, David, for doing a great job with Joshua and Judges. Uh, we will move in next week into a few more books, into the Kings, and I think maybe even on into Esther. I'm not exactly sure, but we'll do a few more books from the Old Testament. And uh, it's kind of a depressing couple books, and so it, it, it's sort of the spiral, the downward spiral of the Israelite people. It's uh, kind of reminiscent of civilization in general. Um, you see it with any great civilization starts out really great maybe it even builds better and then it tends to decline i think in some ways you see that today in the united states from a moral standpoint and uh just when a people start to define good and evil for themselves it doesn't end well and uh, you'd be hard pressed to say that that isn't happening currently 
I hope there's something you can learn from this. Some, there's certainly something I can learn from this. I think the thing that stands out for me is the idea that among people we should be a light and we should be set apart. And I think that can be difficult. I think it's easy to be a holy person by yourself. You know, I think of like a like a monk quietly sitting in a, you know a holy place of sorts in a monastery. It's really easy to be holy, but to be a light to the rest of the world and to be holy is tough. And so the the classic question is, how do you be you know, present among the world and yet reflect something completely different? And so not be sort of sullied by the world. It's difficult. It's very difficult. Uh, so something that I think we're challenged to do is, is we're sanctified day by day. We'll be back again next week. David will be teaching again. And then we actually have the week of Martin Luther King Jr. Day off. And then we'll be on really until the middle of May. So for the rest of the year, uh, we'll be meeting together. Uh, so that's what we've got coming up. Hope you have a wonderful week. We will see you next time on the MD DDS podcast. Goodbye.